What a blessing it is to be with our faith family again today. Brother Eric said uh, that when I come and open the word to you, Brother Eric, you have already opened the word this morning. And I am so thankful that you did because what a blessing it was to be reminded that Jesus is alive. And every Sunday, every Lord's Day when we come together, we are celebrating a risen Savior. Every Lord's Day when we come together and we sing praises and we worship Christ and we fellowship together, we are testifying that we believe Jesus is not laying in a tomb. Jesus is alive. And today we enjoy putting an exclamation mark on that truth or maybe a double exclamation mark on that truth as we come together this morning. But today we're going to be again in Matthew chapter 5. Today I'm going to be preaching from verse 4. We're going to be again joining Jesus on the mount as he preaches his sermon. We have another opportunity as disciples of Christ, as followers of Christ, to come around the feet of Jesus and listen to him teach us about the kingdom of God. And today we're going to continue walking through the Beatitudes together as we seek to understand what it means for us to live as citizens of God's kingdom. What is it that leads to happiness for God's people? What is it that leads to joy for us? What attitudes should we have about ourselves, about others, and what attitudes should we have toward God? Today, we're going to continue that journey. Last week, as we uh, sort of began with the first blessing that Jesus pronounced in his Beatitudes, we saw that we are blessed when we are poor. Not poor according to earthly means or according to our financial or monetary situation, but poor in spirit. When we have a deep understanding of our spiritual bankruptcy before God, when we understand that we're spiritual paupers, that we're beggars, that we have nothing within us to commend us to God, we have no goodness inside of ourselves, we're blessed when we realize this when we understand our bankruptcy before God and we look to the one who has the answer for it. Today, we come to Jesus' second pronouncement of blessing in Matthew 5. Before we read that text, I want to take just a moment to remind you of something that I spent a little bit of time in our introduction to the Sermon on the Mount reminding us of. But it's going to be important here as we begin walking through the Beatitudes to be reminded of this. This is a true statement for this whole sermon, and it's a true statement really for the entirety of the Scripture. But it's important for us to remember as we walk through this next blessing that Jesus pronounces that context is important here. It's important to understand these blessings in their context, to understand what Jesus is saying, not as a series of non-related things, but a, a, a connected, uh, piece together statement that is connected, that what he's going to say is connected to what he has said before. 
In other words, it may be helpful for us to view these beatitudes as the pathway to happiness for the child of God. Jesus is pointing his listeners down the gospel path. I told you when we began our uh, series in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is preaching to them the gospel of the kingdom. And here as we begin walking through it, Jesus is pointing his listeners down a gospel path. He isn't giving them multiple pathways to joy or blessedness. Everything that Jesus says in these pronouncements of blessings in the Beatitudes is connected. And and, and we look at it as just another marker or another waypoint on that path to joy, on that gospel path that Jesus is laying out for us here. As I said last week, we began at the starting point of citizenship in God's kingdom. Before you can be saved, what must you realize about yourself? Before you can be found, you must realize that you're lost. And so Jesus began this path to joy. Jesus began this gospel path that He's laying out for them here in the Beatitudes with poorness of spirit. With an understanding, a realization of your spiritual bankruptcy before God, and an understanding of your spiritual poverty. And today we pick up at that next waypoint on the journey. Let's look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for this faith family, for this body of believers that has gathered here today to magnify and exalt Christ. Lord, as I look around the room and see family members of our members and I see people that we don't normally see here worshiping with us. My heart is filled with such gratitude for them that today you've brought them into our midst to be able to worship with us, to be able to magnify the name of Christ. And Lord, I pray that this morning as your word has already gone out, as Brother Eric has already preached your gospel for us this morning, and and people have already been confronted with your word during Sunday school. I pray, Lord, that you would get our attention. That as we gather here today to be confronted with the preaching of your word, that our attention, that our mind would be centered on your truth. That you would help us to shut out distractions that you would help us to understand our situation that we are in as it relates to you. God, that if we came in the room this morning thinking that we had a relationship with you and we don't, that you would make it crystal clear to us. Lord, if we came in the room this morning apart from Christ, Lord, that you would open our eyes to our desperate need for him. And that you would draw us to Christ. That you would bring us to faith. Lord, I pray for those of us in the room that know Christ. 
Lord, that you would just remind us of the beauty and, and, and the majesty of the gospel and the beauty and the glory and the majesty of Christ. And Lord, that we would leave here being even more in awe of him than we were when we came in. We pray that everything that we do, everything that we think, would be to the glory and honor of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who is risen from the dead. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Again, we see Jesus calling blessed or blessed something that the world would never call blessed. What on earth do you mean, Jesus, that those who mourn are blessed? It's, it's totally contrary to how we would ever view anything left to ourselves. The word mourn is commonly used in our language to refer to deep grief that is often in relation to the death of a loved one or the loss of a relationship. We see this word, it refers to inward grief, to whatever inward grief we may experience. We think about that word mourn or we think about the process of mourning. We understand that it is an undeniable fact of the human experience. If we've been alive for very long at one point or another, we've experienced a season of inward grief. If we've been alive very long at one point or another, we've experienced something that has caused us to grieve. We've experienced something that has destroyed us inwardly and caused us to uh, pain and sorrow and mourning. This is oftentimes felt for very valid reasons. And if we're honest, there are times when we feel this mourning or we feel this grief for reasons that may not be so valid. In other words, every one of us in the room have mourned over things that matter. Every single one of us in the room have mourned over things that are worthy of mourning about. We've lost a loved one or, or we've seen someone struggle through illness or disease or we, we see human suffering and, and it works up in us this, this grief, this mourning that strikes at our heart. But every single one of us in the room have also mourned or grieved over things that ultimately don't matter. We found ourselves in seasons of grief over things that in relationship to the kingdom of God, in relationship to the grand scheme of things, really have absolutely no value at all. We've experienced grief in the face of extreme loss, and we've experienced grief over petty things that truly don't deserve a moment of our attention. And when we do that, it reveals for us just how caught up in earthly things our hearts can be. Our mourning, what we choose to mourn and grieve over, reveals where our affections lie, doesn't it? We're mourning and grieving over something, then obviously... We've placed some value 
on that thing that we're mourning over. For mourning and grieving over something, it reveals how caught up in it we are. I was thinking about this in my own immaturity and worldliness. I've experienced what feels like true mourning over things that many of you sitting in the congregation would look at me and say, that's the stupidest thing that you could ever choose to mourn over. That, that's the, the most insane thing that, you, that, that, that anyone would ever choose to feel grief over. But in my heart, in that moment, it feels like real grief. I've experienced grief and mourning over the end of a tournament run for a sports team that I love. 2015 was a hard year for UK basketball fans, wasn't it? But before you judge me on that too hard, as I admit to you just how petty we can be and how caught up in worldly things we can be, you must admit this morning that you too have found yourselves grieving over things that are equally petty. You found yourselves mourning over things that ultimately, in the grand scheme of things, mean absolutely nothing. In the grand scheme of the kingdom, they mean nothing at all. They're petty. Our hearts are a factory for idols. And when those idols are touched, or we lose them, we can experience grief. So Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Here, this pronouncement of blessing, Jesus is making a promise. He says, the one who mourns will be comforted. And so the first thing that we need to understand or the first thing that we need to determine about what Jesus is saying here is what kind of mourning is he talking about? What kind of mourning is Jesus pointing to? Is this a general promise that extends to everyone who experiences grief? Is Jesus saying that in my petty, means nothing, meaningless mourning, that, I'm, that, that I've got this promise from Christ that I'm going to be comforted? Is this a promise that applies across the board to everyone who mourns? Is Jesus making this promise for broken-hearted sports fans and those who are experiencing legitimate grief alike? Or does Jesus have something else in mind here? What is it that Christ is actually pointing us to? Well, I want to take just a moment to make the point to you this morning that God does grant comfort to the hearts of His children that mourn. I want you to understand that because I'm about to spend a good portion of this sermon telling you that Jesus here in Matthew 5 verse 4 isn't making a universal promise that extends across the gamut of human mourning. That's not what we actually see Jesus doing here. It's not a promise that covers any and every type of mourning. However, before I do, I want to make it clear that God comforts the hearts of His people who are grieving. 
You've experienced loss. You've experienced hurt. Maybe this morning you're sitting here in the room and, and, and your heart is broken within you. Your heart is crushed. Your spirit is crushed. And you're thinking, well, I've been clinging to this promise. Are, are you now going to tell me that, that this promise doesn't have anything to do with what I'm going through? Well, listen, what Jesus is saying here may not specifically apply to whatever season you're finding yourself in. But understand this morning that if you're a child of God in the room, God comforts you in your grief. God is attentive to you in your mourning. He's attentive to the mourner's prayer. If you're brokenhearted in the room this morning, take heart because God uh, is near to the brokenhearted. If you're crushed in spirit in the room this morning, take heart because God saves those who are crushed in spirit. Put your hope in Christ. Put your hope in Him. Cast your cares and your anxieties upon Him because He cares for you. Lay your burdens down at His feet. Listen, friends, this morning, God loves you and God cares for you. And if you're finding yourself in a season of grief, you can have confidence. If you belong to God, He is near to you in your mourning. The last thing that I would ever want someone to do is leave the sermon today thinking that they can't turn to Christ in the face of legitimate grief, even if that isn't exactly particularly the kind of grief that Jesus is aiming at in this particular text. I want to look at some scripture this morning that may encourage us in that. Uh, go to 2 Corinthians 1. 2 Corinthians 1. I'll begin reading in verse 3. Because I want us to be convinced this morning that God cares for us in our grief. He attends us in our mourning. 2 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. What afflictions does Paul say Christ comforts him in? What afflictions does, Christ, does Paul say Christ comforts us in? He says those who are in any affliction. If you belong to God this morning and you are afflicted, if you belong to God this morning and you are grieving, if you belong to God this morning and your heart is broken, if you're in the room this morning and that describes you, understand that God loves you and He cares for you. If you're struggling with any kind of grief, God invites you to look to Him and find comfort for your hearts and rest for your souls. And while that is true, and God through His promises stands ready to comfort the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit, 
this particular promise for comfort in the midst of mourning that Jesus gives us here in Matthew 5 verse 4 has something a little bit more specific in view. I said when I began this sermon that we need to understand Jesus is laying out for us the roadmap to happiness or blissfulness as a citizen of God's kingdom. Remember, that's what he's doing here. How does the citizen of God's kingdom experience joy? How does the citizen of God's kingdom experience happiness? Who is it that can say they are blessed or or happy? He's preaching the gospel to them here. And he began these pronouncements of blessing with spiritual poverty that we recognize our bankruptcy before God. And the next waypoint on this pathway is mourning. And so as we look at this particular pronouncement of blessing, interpreting it and seeking to understand it by what Jesus has already said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, we say mourning over what? What's mourning over, the, over that spiritual poverty because of sin? Jesus has in view here a mourning over that state of utter sinfulness that we find ourselves in. And so here Jesus isn't giving a general promise for everyone that mourns. He's giving a specific blessing to those on the gospel pathway to joy. When you realize your brokenness before God, when you realize your nothing good in you condition before God and you mourn over it, you will be comforted. Jesus has in view here a mourning over your spiritual condition. He told us last week, He told us in the previous verse what our spiritual condition was. What is it? There's nothing good in us that commends us to God. And we left here uh, feeling really good about ourselves, didn't we? We read all these texts that tell us just how great we are. Before God, all our righteousness is like what? Filthy rags, like an unclean garment. Paul in Romans 3, as he's quoting some of the prophets in the Psalms, he made us feel really good about ourselves, didn't he? Your throat is an open grave. There's none who is good. None who is righteous. Uh, All have turned aside. None are seeking for God. What's our spiritual condition before God? We're bankrupt. We're paupers. There's nothing good inside of us. We're spiritually dead. And here Jesus says that if your response to understanding that is mourning over it, then you will be comforted. This is a mourning over our sin. While mourning is something that we all do, At various points in our lives, we often find ourselves mourning over everything but that which we ought to mourn over. You say, well, what is it that we ought to mourn over? What is is it that ought to crush our spirit? What is it that ought to break our hearts? Friends, this morning, the answer to that question is sin. You ought to mourn over sin. We, we began this sermon this morning talking about all the various kinds of things that we mourn over. 
All the various things that we spend our time grieving that reveal the idols of our hearts, that reveal that we really don't value things as we ought to. That we don't have a value placed on God and His kingdom as we ought. But here, this is something that we ought to mourn. We ought to mourn our sin. We ought to experience a mourning over the condition that we find ourselves in. The world will mourn over anything but the fact that there is nothing between it and God but enmity. The world will grieve over many things, but it refuses to grieve over that which it ought to be the most distraught. Think about this for a moment, friends. Left to yourselves, what exists between you and God? There is nothing but enmity and wrath. There is nothing but enmity and wrath between you and the holy God of the universe. And this morning, Jesus is saying that when you recognize that and and your response to that is to then mourn, to be grieved, then you'll be comforted. That's what Jesus has in mind here with this blessing. You are blessed or happy when you mourn over your own sinful condition. Look at the word mourn there. This particular Greek word is used ten times in the New Testament, and five of those uses are dealing with mourning over sin, dealing with that inward grief that comes to the heart of one who realizes just how terribly they've spurned the holy God of the universe by their sin. That morning that comes when you begin to grasp where you stand before God, when you recognize the bigness or the vastness of your sin, and you realize how holy and amazing and perfect and transcendent He is. One commentator said it like this. He said of this type of morning, This is that entire feeling which the sense of our spiritual poverty begets. And so the second beatitude is but the complement of the first. The one is intellectual. The other, the emotional aspect of the same thing. It is poverty of spirit that says, I am undone. And it is the mourning which this causes that makes it break forth in the form of a lamentation. Woe is me, I am undone. What's he saying? He's saying that it is the the, the recognition, the, the realization of our spiritual poverty, of that fact that we are undone before a holy God. That is poorness of spirit. The mourning is that emotion that we feel because we are poor in spirit. The mourning is that feeling that overwhelms us, that deep realization and understanding that overwhelms us because we are poor in spirit. And he he hearkened back to that uh, Isaiah 6 account. We looked at that last week. When Isaiah saw this amazing vision of God high and exalted in His holiness, 
what did Isaiah immediately realize? What he immediately realized when he saw God for who he is, Isaiah immediately realized his poverty of spirit. He immediately realized where he stands before a holy God. His spirit within him was humbled, wasn't it? What was his response? His response was mourning. He says, woe is me, I'm undone. He doesn't just say, yep, okay God, I see that I'm undone there. I see you in your holiness, and yes, I am undone. Isaiah breaks forth in a lamentation. Woe is me, I'm undone. He's mourning over his condition. He's mourning over his sin. I think we would do well at this point to spend some time examining our hearts in relation to what Jesus says here is blessed. Jesus has told us here that to mourn over sin, to experience this type of mourning is blessed. And so I think it would do us well to examine our hearts. Is that our response to sin? How do you respond to your sin? What kind of feeling does it work up in you when you feel the weight of it and realize the consequence of it? That it stands between you and God. That because of it left to yourself, you're living under His wrath. This morning, are you even willing to acknowledge your sin before Him? Are you even willing to come to terms with your sin? Are you even willing to hear me as I'm preaching to you about your sin? What is your response? Well, maybe you're seeking to hide from your sin. Maybe you're seeking to deny your sin. You're hiding from it. Instead of owning it and mourning over it, maybe you're seeking to pretend like it doesn't exist. Maybe you've tried to convince yourself that you're fine just as you are. And what others call sin is just normal behavior. You may be the kind of person that becomes agitated at the suggestion that you've offended God with your disobedience. How dare you say that I have offended God? How dare you point out what I love and call it sin? Is that your response this morning to Jesus' words? Are you denying your sin? Are you seeking to hide from your sin? Are you doing like Adam and Eve did in the garden? When they fell, when they disobeyed God, what was their response? Got to get out of here, right? Got to hide. Don't want to be seen. Folks go to great lengths to avoid having to take responsibility for sin. I'm convinced this is ultimately why atheism is attractive to some. You see, if there's not a God, there's no one to be accountable to. Those of us that are convinced, those of us that 
that can't imagine how any of this could possibly exist apart from God. We look at the atheist and we think, my goodness, how do you come to that conclusion? And I genuinely believe that a motivating factor behind that sort of thinking is a desire to want to hide or deny sin, to hide from accountability, to not have to come to terms with the fact that you can't live however you want to live. You can't just do whatever you want to do and not face accountability and consequences for it. But the atheist says, well, if I just simply deny God, then I'm free from having consequences. Friends, only a fool says in his heart that there is no God. Seeking to hide from sin through denying it exists is foolish. Maybe this morning you're seeking to cover up your sin. You know it's there. You know that you've fallen short. You know that you've been disobedient. You know when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, you've come to this intellectual understanding that you know what? I am a sinner. But your response is to seek to cover it up. To seek to soothe your conscience through worldly means. Some seek to do this through religious means. In fact, this is what the Pharisees that Jesus addressed often throughout this sermon did. Rather than owning their sin, rather than having an accurate, biblical, genuine understanding of themselves, what did they do? They soothed their conscience by seeking to cover up their sin with religious activity. This is the attitude that Jesus pointed out in his parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Look with me at Luke 18. What kind of attitude is Jesus pointing out through this parable? Luke 18, beginning in verse 10. Luke 18, beginning in verse 10. Two men went up in the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, was the Pharisee a sinner in the parable? Well, certainly he was, right? What attitude is Jesus trying to point out? This man has soothed his own conscience through his religious activity. This man has soothed his own conscience by seeking to cover up his sin by worldly means. By seeking to to, uh, cover up his sin by the works of his own hands. By seeking to be his own answer for sin. That attitude was 
the embodiment of what the Pharisees often thought of themselves. In verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What response did we see in the Pharisee? Covering his sin. Soothing his conscience. Denying his sin. The tax collector owned his sin. And he mourned over his sin. And Jesus said, he went down to his house justified. Maybe this morning you're counting on some other means of covering your sin. And listen, friends, I would just simply tell you this morning, there's only one who can cover and remove the weight of your sin, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're attempting this morning to cover up your sin, to pretend it isn't there, if, you're, if this morning you're trying to be your own answer for sin, if your response to sin is to say, well, I need to do some more stuff, I need to do some more things. Friends, you're fighting a battle in vain. There's only one who can cover and remove the weight of your sin. All other attempts are futile. This morning, maybe you're seeking to justify your sin. Maybe you're seeking to justify it. In other words... I did that, but there's a darn good reason for why I did it that makes it okay. I did that, but there's a really good reason for why I have all these sins, and I'd be happy to explain them to you. Whatever it is you've done, you think you've got a good reason for doing it, or maybe you can blame shift onto someone else. And that removes any guilt from you. That's also not the right answer for sin. We see a really good example of that type of thinking in King Saul when he was to go and defeat the Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15 verse 3. We have this command, now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. What was the command to King Saul? Lead Israel into battle and utterly wipe them off the face of the earth. Utterly destroy them. Kill them all, kill their animals, get rid of them from the earth. Well, listen to the account in 1 Samuel 15, beginning in verse 12. Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went to Gilgal. 
And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I performed the commandment of the Lord. Had he? Verse 14, and Samuel said, What then is this bleating of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we've devoted to destruction. What we understand is Saul spared the king of the Amalekites. Saul spared the best of their herds. And when Samuel confronted him about his sin, what was his response? I did this for God. What do you mean I sinned? I mean, I did it all for for better reasons. I've got these better reasons for why I did what I did. That excuse doesn't hold up. Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord has said to me this night. What we understand is Samuel continues on in his conversation with Saul. Because of his sin, the Lord rejected him as king. Listen, there's no justification for sin. That's also not the proper response. Well, Lord, I know what you've said to do. I know what kind of life you've said to live. I know that this ought to be how I should live, but I've got this better plan. I've got this better thing in mind. And and I think that if I just do that, then it'll justify. It's not the right response to sin. There are many responses that we may have to our sin, but only one response leads to the blessing of Christ. Only one response to our spiritual bankruptcy leads to joy, and that is to mourn over it. That is to mourn over our sin. That we realize our sin before God. And our response is to grieve and mourn. Because we have spurned the holy God of the universe. That we, This awareness of our sin brings us to a place of deep grief and mourning. One commentator said, While Jesus preached the kingdom of heaven is near, he, like John the Baptist before him, expected not jubilation, but contrite tears. It is not enough to acknowledge spiritual bankruptcy with a cold heart. Man, that's good, isn't it? What should be the response of Jesus preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. The response is to mourn and grieve because we have fallen short of God's glory. Because we've spurned the holy God of the universe. In James chapter 4, verse 8, 
James says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Listen to verse 9. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. What should your attitude be about sin? What should your attitude be about your spiritual bankruptcy? What should your attitude be about this, this, this stain on you because you have fallen short of the glory of God and you've chosen to disobey God and spurn Him at every point? What should be your attitude? James says, listen, you ought to wail and mourn and grieve. Let your laughter be turned to joy. Let your flippant attitude about sin be turned to mourning. Paul wrote to the Corinthians. If you're familiar with the Corinthian church and you've studied 1st and 2nd Corinthians, you understand that that was a church that was in an absolute mess because of sin that had been tolerated in the body. Paul wrote to them in 1st Corinthians 5 verses 1 and 2 and he says it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife. Paul says not even the Gentiles tolerate this kind of behavior. Not even the Gentiles tolerate this kind of attitude about sin or this, this kind of lifestyle, this kind of living. And how have they responded? Paul says, you're arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And so he gave them a roadmap. He gave them a plan for being able to deal with sin. He called them out because of their arrogance. They were flippant about sin. And Paul says, listen, wake up. Knock the blinders off. Understand that this is something to mourn and grieve over. And Paul wrote back to them in 2 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 6. After hearing a report of the result of what happened in this situation, he said, But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me so that I rejoice still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us, for godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret whereas worldly grief produces death. How did the Corinthians respond when their sin was pointed out to them? They mourned. They grieved. They were no longer flippant about their sin. What is the proper response to sin? The, re the proper response 
is a mourning, a godly grief, a godly sorrow that leads to repentance. And what is the promise if our response is mourning? The promise is comfort. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Listen, friends, comfort was a theme in Messianic prophecy. All throughout Isaiah's prophecy, he's prophesying comfort for the people of God. I want you to look with me in Isaiah chapter 61, beginning in verse 1. We're going to read a text here. And then we're going to look at how Jesus applied this text to himself. Look at Isaiah 61, beginning in verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that He may be glorified. Now let's look over in Luke 4, beginning in verse 18. And let's read how Jesus applies this to Himself. Actually, beginning in verse 16. Luke 4, beginning in verse 16. And He came to Nazareth, where He had been brought up. As was His custom, He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Listen to verse 20. And He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on Him, and He began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Man, oh man. What is Jesus saying about himself? What Isaiah prophesied about in Isaiah 61. This one who would come and bind up the wounds, who would come and heal the poor, who would come and comfort those who are mourning. This scripture is fulfilled in me. Christ is the one who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. Jesus came to be the answer for the poor in spirit. He came to be the comfort for those who mourn over their sin. You may have been sitting there this morning thinking, man, this is Easter. thought he was going to preach an Easter sermon. 
Listen, here's your Easter sermon. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And what is the comfort for those who mourn? The comfort for those who mourn is that Jesus Christ, God the Son, He stepped out of heaven. He lived a perfect life. He did what we could not do. He perfectly fulfilled the law of God. He went to the cross. He bore the weight of our sin and Himself on the cross. He died. He was buried. And on the third day, He rose again. What is your comfort in your mourning over sin? Your comfort is to look to the One who's risen from the dead. Put your hope in Christ. What is our comfort in our mourning? Our comfort is that Christ rose from the dead during Jesus' earthly ministry. The Gospel of Luke will often declare that His face was set toward Jerusalem. We understand that Jesus did everything that He did to lead up to the climax of why He came. To lead up to the cross. Everything that Jesus did was leading Him to Calvary. You say, man, things didn't really work out for God's plan A, did it? Jesus... They killed him. Listen, friends, Jesus is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. He's the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. And before the foundations of the earth were laid, it was God's sovereign plan and purpose to glorify Himself through the Son ransoming a people for Himself. And when we see Christ here preaching to the crowds as He's on the mount and He's preaching to them, and He says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What is in the mind of Christ when He's talking about the comfort that exists for the morning? Go back to Isaiah 61. The comfort is Calvary. The comfort is the cross. The comfort is the resurrection. The comfort is that in Christ, sin, that which we are mourning over, is defeated. That death and hell and the grave is defeated. That Jesus bore the weight of all that in Himself. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted with a gospel comfort. This morning, if you're here and you say, you don't know Christ, you know nothing of this comfort, friends, Jesus is as near to you as faith. You've heard the gospel this morning, and my invitation to you, our invitation to you, is to simply believe what it says. To respond to the gospel in faith. 
that in your mourning over your sin, that you find your comfort in Christ, in his death and his resurrection. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for another opportunity to hear the gospel. I pray, Lord, today that if anyone has heard your voice, that they would not harden their heart, for today is the day of salvation. God, for those who mourn over sin, may they find gospel comfort. For those who are flippant over sin, may they mourn. Lord, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.